The working title of my sermon today, this is a work in progress, the working title is, How Do We Know When It's Time to Go or Time to Stay? It's a topic I've been pondering for most of the summer, actually, as part of a longer-term writing project. I'm trying to better understand and articulate what's at stake for us and what God may be doing within and around us whenever we need to make a big decision, and in particular, the decision either to go or to stay. And apparently I'm not alone in this thinking. Surveys indicate that largely as a result of the pandemic, as many as 30% of the American workforce is considering or has made a change in their work, or is considering or have made a geographic move. And you may be among them. Or you or someone you love may be asking questions like, well, do I go back to school? Or do I quit? Is it time to leave my apartment or my house and look for another? Is it time for me to leave my faith community for another? Or perhaps no community at all? Statistics indicate the dropout rate um, is increasing among people who once had a strong faith affiliation. Uh, There's a whole study of young people in particular, the title being very haunting. The title of the study is, You Lost Me. You Lost Me. Has the time come to leave a particular relationship or set of relationships or, or to commit to the ones we're in in a new way? These are big decisions. And how do we make them? And how does God show up for us in those crucible moments if God shows up at all? I tend to believe or hope that if I really listen, if I open myself and I really listen, God is going to tell me what to do. And then my job is simply to be obedient to what I determine is God's will for my life. Sometimes, though, and this is the frustrating part, God seems to be quite silent on the matter I'm struggling with. Or it could be that I'm not listening, or I actually hear something that I don't want to hear, and I pretend that I don't. Now, my husband Paul tends to relate to God quite differently on the assumption that God has plenty to do, actually, and isn't micromanaging his life and that God is as interested in as everybody else is, including his wife, to see what Paul will decide at those pivotal moments, that God, with all of us, is just curious to see what we will do. Either way, this process of deciding, or to use a term with more explicit spiritual overtones, of discerning, is rarely immediate, or completely clear, at least not at first, or speaking for me, at least not for me. And uh, there, there, was an urban, there was a theologian, um, also an Episcopal priest, who did a lot of writing about the Christian life back in the 1980s. His name was Urban Holmes. And he, in one of those many books, he defined this discerning 
uh, for, for Christians in particularly in this way. He said, discernment is the ability to intuit God's will ca- by casting a particular question the Christian faces in a given situation before the judgment of the deeper self. Would you like to hear that again? Isn't that a great, I just incredible sentence. The ability to intuit God's will by casting a particular question the Christian faces in a given situation before the judgment of the deeper self. And the result of discernment, of this discernment, he goes on, will be a willingness to risk decisions and take actions whose surety is enigmatic at best. It's a willingness to step into the uncertainty of the result, having made such a difficult decision. And so the result of this kind of discerning, he suggests, is a greater capacity to face into uncertainty and a willingness to risk failure in the service of what matters most. Now, I can imagine you're all thinking what I've been thinking all week. We've been watching on the global stage the immediate consequences of our president's decision to keep to the timeline that he and others established for the withdrawal of military troops and American personnel in Afghanistan. And I don't know what to make of that decision, actually. And the multitude of decisions we have made as a nation regarding Afghanistan in the 20 years since 9-11, except to state the obvious, the obvious, that the humanitarian crisis is devastating to witness, and it demands our compassionate response. And if you have any friends, as I do, who are either Afghanis themselves or who have served in Afghanistan, their grief and worry and survivor's guilt and sense of helplessness now is uh, devastating to them as they try to help their friends, family, and former colleagues caught in the chaos of this moment. But thankfully, they and others in this country, countless others, are doing whatever they can to help and to advocate, including many from across this diocese, I dare say many of you. And if you are among those people, I want to thank you and assure you that as a diocese, we will act as collectively and as compassionately as we can because a great number of Afghani refugees will be coming and are coming into our region. For today's purposes, however, um, suffice to say that um, we have many such global examples of how our decisions either to stay or to go affect other people. And that is also true in other more immediate realms of life. Imagine the conversations taking place in Afghani homes right now, Afghan homes right now. Do we stay or do we go? How do we stay? How do we go? For them and for us, whenever we are in those crucible times, the process involves making decisions and taking actions that whose surety is enigmatic at best. And that is to say that neither staying or going is always the right decision for everyone, nor is it the same for everyone. Right? 
Now, speaking personally now, I, I spent a long part of my, um, my early life, early childhood, early adulthood, on the go. I kid you not, almost like clockwork. Every two to three years, it seemed, I made a significant change that involved leaving some place or some endeavor for another. It, it wasn't always by choice, and I wasn't always happy about it. Often it felt like I had to leave something or some place just as I was learning how to thrive in that place. But the pattern established itself such that when the rhythms of my life eventually slowed down a bit, it didn't feel right, as if something, I was doing something wrong or I was missing something because there wasn't anything beckoning me again from the horizon. And it took me time, years actually, to realize that staying put didn't mean staying the same, that there was in fact almost always a deeper call involved with staying somewhere, and that sometimes staying is the most courageous decision we can make, and almost no one else knows that we're making it, right? And in those years, I read a novel, a um, great novel by the author Anne Tyler, entitled Saint Maybe, which is about a young man named Ian, who at age 17, for, for good reason, feels responsible for his brother's accidental death. And with the subsequent death, shortly thereafter, of his brother's wife, he decides to drop out of school to help his parents raise his brother's three children. Now, it's a very slow-moving novel on the surface, but there's a lot happening emotionally and relationally within Ian as the years pass, and years go by, right? And at one point, he tells the minister of his church um, and by the way, the church, which is this conglomerate of social misfits, plays a very sweet role in the story. But anyway, he, he's talking to his minister, and he says to his minister, you know, I think it's really time for me to get on with my life. Um, and the minister asks him what he means by that. And Ian winds up echoing the words of a girl, young woman, who one of many who broke up with him because she couldn't understand why he was so tethered to these children and to this weird church. And Ian cries out to his minister, I am wasting my life. To which the minister very quietly responds, Ian, this is your life. This is it. Lean into it. Accept it for the gift that it is. And I tell you, that became a mantra for me of sorts as I learned to live what it means for me to stay in place long enough to grow up inside and to create the kind of foundations that would allow others to thrive, this is your life, Marianne. Lean into it. Go deeper. And in recent days, I've heard resonance of that same sentiment coming from people slowly coming to terms with on some aspect of their lives that is theirs not only to accept passively, but to embrace and take to a deeper level. Okay. Now, I've just read to you, and you have printed in your bulletins, this remarkable passage from the Gospel of John. It's the end of this really long section in which Jesus expounds again and again upon an event that had shown up earlier in the Gospel and is in all four accounts of Jesus' life, which scholars tells us makes it a big deal. 
And that event, as you recall, is the day when Jesus, at the end of a long day of teaching, provides food, actual food for a multitude, with the gifts of a few loaves of bread and some fish that people had provided. Um, And in the earlier versions of this story, the message seems to be, offer what you have and God will provide, right? Offer what you have and God will provide food, real food for you and for others. Um, But in this version of the story, it's different. Um, it's, uh, It's Jesus is saying to those listening, actually to think less about physical food and to more and more about himself as the food that satisfies souls and spirit. I'm the bread of life, he says. I, those who eat my bread, my, my body and drink my blood abide in me, which is very strange on the surface of it. But what lies beneath is this growing understanding among first century Christians that even, hear me now, even when their physical hunger persisted, even when their initial expectations of Jesus uh, and what he would do for them were disappointed, even when they found themselves in situations and places that were hard and dangerous and it was clear that God was not going to swoop down and deliver them, even then Jesus was with them in spirit and in truth, that they felt it. They felt his presence with them. They felt called to abide with him. They didn't have to wait for him to come back because amazingly enough, as he promised, he was already there. Not in the way that you initially want when you're hungry, right? But he was there. For some, anyway. For any of us, actually, who've been raised in a particular faith tradition or chosen to be a part of one, this is a decision, actually, that we have to come to as we walk in the faith. Because at some point, and perhaps many points, wherever we are, in whatever tradition, um, things aren't going to turn out the way we hoped or the way we expected. God does not live up to our expectations. Jesus isn't who we thought he was. And we have all sorts of reasons to doubt what we were once asked to believe. And we come to this decision. Do we go or do we stay? And some of Jesus' followers, John tells us, decide, you know, actually, I think I'll leave. This is difficult. I, I don't get it. And while John, the gospel writer, judges these people pretty harshly, I doubt that Jesus did. Or he does today, for that matter, when anyone chooses another path or no path at all. And the reason why I doubt it is because Jesus' love is unconditional, right? And so love isn't love if it's withdrawn when people don't do what we want, right? The invitation to follow him isn't an invitation if we don't get to say no, right? That's coercion. So if we get to say yes or no, the choice is ours. And he, but he can no more stop loving us than when we walk away than we can stop loving the people who walk away from us, right? It's just... But you can hear the poignancy, can't you, in his voice when he turns to that inner circle and says, well, and you? What about you? Do you also want to go away? He really wants to know. And, you know, and then Simon responds with those words that, you know, you can't help but love the guy, right? You know, Lord, to whom will we go? They'd come too far to turn back. So, I hear in that one of those sweet moments of clarity, right, that come to us from time to time, 
Um, it, he just knew. It wasn't, he didn't know what was going to happen next. He didn't know that he was actually going to you know, deny him three times just a few days later, right? But he, he was in. And the decision wasn't merely to stay, it was to go deeper. It wasn't a choice between actively leaving and passively staying. It was between two active choices, a conscious choice, not a drifting, but to stay with depth and intentionality. Okay, so I'm, I, I leave you now um, with all these thoughts and this final one. Rest assured that wherever you might be in this process of pondering about anything, but in particular about staying or leaving, or if there are others that you're carrying in your heart because they're in a similar place, trust that it's a particularly sacred time for you or for them. And whatever you discern or decide, um, what to pray for, I think, is sufficient clarity to feel settled enough to take whatever step seems best, right? The wisdom of the deeper self, that sense of clarity. Doesn't have to be perfect clarity, just a little bit is enough often. Um, so that you can be at peace whatever happens next. And as you act on that decision, trust that you'll be given grace and courage either to go or to stay wholeheartedly. And should you question your decision or feel you've made a mistake or you need to change it later on, happens all the time. Know that grace will be with you whatever happens next. Whatever happens next, his love and his presence is non-negotiable. So may I pray for you. Lord, in this time of change and transition and decision-making for so many on so many levels, I ask that you hold these, your beloved ones, wherever they are discerning and deciding, that you might give them, Lord, the gift of wisdom and understanding and most, most of all assurance of your abiding presence, no matter what. And help all of us, Lord, who feel the call or the desire to follow Jesus Give us eyes to see him more clearly, hearts to love him more dearly, and the capacity to follow him more nearly, day by day, by day by day. Amen. <laughs>